Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the highlight show of the Trail Running Ireland podcast. And before we kick off the interview with Evan, we're delighted to announce a new show sponsor, Chorus Watches, who have made a massive impact on the global GPS watch market over the last number of years. They have recently launched the Pace 2, the lightest GPS watch ever made. The Chorus Apex Watch won the 2019 Runner's World Gear of the Year Award, and the Chorus Vertex was awarded the two. 2019 best altimeter watch by outdoor gear lab so make sure to check out their new uk and ireland website uk.chorus.com for more information and we're looking forward to working with them over the next couple of months chorus watches great to have them on board have a great training week everybody hope you're all doing well and enjoy the interview with evan lynch Our feature interview this week is with one of the country's leading sports nutritionists, Evan Lynch. Evan has a degree in food science and health. He has a postgraduate diploma in dietetics. He's currently studying his master's in exercise nutrition. He's worked a lot with Athletics Ireland, Cycling Ireland, DCU Athletics Club, and he works one-to-one with a number of professional and Olympic athletes. He was an international race walker himself, so he has and has had his skin in the game and what I love about Evan is that as he says himself when he gives nutritional advice it's not based on opinion it's based on fact as he devours research papers and has a mountain of knowledge and experience to share. I recorded the interview guys over the weekend and unfortunately Skype just let us down a little bit at times in terms of sound quality so do bear with us as Evan has some incredible super tips to pass on advice that no doubt will help us all run faster and longer so enjoy everybody one of the country's leading nutritionists evan lynch evan it's great to have you on the show with us this week but evan can i just start off by saying that you broke my heart there during the week when i was reading one of your about coffee and that you mentioned that we can actually build up a tolerance to caffeine and i can can therefore lose its effectiveness in terms of performance. Does that mean, Evan, that I should reduce my coffee intake to maybe only session days to get the benefits of it? Out with the daily morning coffee, Evan, maybe? Uh, no, so there's a little bit of nuance to that one, right? So drinking your daily cup of coffee is totally fine because it only gives you an 80 milligram hit, which is pretty uh, mild. When you're using things like caffeine powders, pills, or pre-workouts, which are going to give you a significantly higher dosage. If you get used to that, that starts to lose its effectiveness. Well, then you're probably going to be in a bit of trouble. Now, like ideally, you'd only use those types of products around key sessions, around races. And let, let me tell you the difference, I suppose. Um, do you know what weight you are in kilos on? So, so I can tailor yeah. this exactly yeah, to you. Yeah, sure. Um, in competition race weight, everyone would probably be about 67 and a half. Off season, okay. I'd say about 70. Okay, so you can start to get some benefits from caffeine at half a milligram per kg of body weight. That's when you start to get a little bit more mental alertness. And if it's a strong coffee... Uh, or a bigger one, you might have 100 megs of caffeine in there. Um, 
it can raise your blood pressure as well. And if you're if you're prone to anxiety, give you a bit of palpitations. But that that's not a performance enhancer. So a standard coffee, eighty to one hundred milligrams of caffeine. Bear in mind, performance potential boosters started 0.5 milligrams per caffeine. The maximal benefit is between three and six milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight. So let's take you as you are now, around 70 kilos. Yeah. You would have to have a triple espresso to get into that ergogenic aid territory before training or races. So you would have to be knocking back triple espressos a few times a week before you would risk um, becoming a little bit more sensitive to caffeine. Wow. And that's, that's all in like a very uh, small time frame within, you know, each other taking them. And caffeine lasts for about six hours when it, when it peaks in your system. And that takes 45 minutes to happen. And okay. yeah, so yeah, it's, it's not the same thing. So you're okay to keep having your cup of coffee in the morning. In fact, over a 24-hour period, five cups is the maximum they recommend having. So if you're anywhere up around three or four a day, you're all good. The difference is the frequency, or, or like how, how would I say this, the time between all those cups of coffee. If you have them close together, maybe space them out a bit more. Okay. Um, you mentioned there, Evan, as well, blood pressure in terms of mm -hmm. coffee and caffeine. I'm sure everybody's blood pressure yeah. levels are probably a little bit higher um, at the moment. <laughs> is, is coffee something to avoid then as we're in the depths of COVID-19? Or, or Definitely you know, not. Definitely not. Okay, good. Definitely yeah. not. So, so that's, um, that blood pressure increase is very minor and it's transient. So it only lasts for a little, little bit of time. And it probably doesn't happen with a standard cup of coffee. Again, you'd have to be hitting double espressos or multiple coffees a day to get that effect. And okay. one of the reasons caffeine has ergogenic potential or sports enhancing potential, if you take someone who's exercising, let's say you decide, you know what, I'm going to run up the side of this hill. A few things happen when you start exercising internally anyway. You get a blood pressure increase to maintain the same kind of flow rate as you get some vasodilation. So your arteries widen. So you need more pressure to keep the same amount of blood or blood flow in, in the wider arteries. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Okay. It's so kind, it was it's a, kind of a, a pressure. Sorry, go on. I cut you off there. No, no. I was just going to say, and then in summary, say for people listening, to get the maximum benefit of an espresso, or would I be right in saying a triple espresso before they start their race? Or, or no, yes, depending on the body weight, maybe. Yeah, the, it would definitely be depending on body weight. If you're under 55-ish kilos, a double espresso will probably do you. If you're 60 kilos or more, you might need a triple. Now, that is something you definitely want to practice in two or three key sessions before you do it on a race day. Because high caffeine doses can give you heart palpitations and cause gastrointestinal upset, neither of which you want to find out on race day. Okay. Okay. No, listen, thanks for that. Really important information there. And everybody likes their coffee in the morning time. So it's good to hear Evan, that we don't need to have <laughs> taken it, especially now. And, you know, we did mention, you know, that we're all in the depths of COVID-19, unfortunately, Evan, at the moment. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that might be struggling with higher stress levels than normal, you know, blood pressure problems, maybe, yeah. as you were saying. And I think sometimes 
our nutrition can be often based around our emotional state of mind. So therefore, maybe at the moment, we're, we're having a few extra biscuits, we're having a few extra glasses of wine. Yeah. Maybe we're going through the, the full tub of peanut butter instead of just a scoop as we should. Is there, any, <laughs> is there any way, any techniques that we can detach, to, to learn how to detach our emotional state of mind from our eating habits? Is it just get on with it? It's a great question. Or are there any good little tricks that you could have? So what I see happening a lot with athletes, and you know you, you know, if you're following me, I, I work with mainly endurance athletes, but that includes a couple of professional cyclists, Olympic marathoners, race walkers, things like that. Even high-level athletes, this is the case exact same in club runners people do exercise for fun so uh, there's, there's a point here it's going to take me a minute or two to get there but there is a point right sure let's say you start exercising exercise is usually the first thing people will do before they get a blood test before they change their diet before they start paying attention to their sleep or stress levels if you want to get healthy exercise is the number one thing to do probably because it's the easiest and it's the most um impactful and the most obviously impactful thing you do it's your breath and you do it etc when you have people who are athletes so the people listening to this podcast will probably identify to a certain degree as mountain runners or trail runners so when you meet them and they might say hello i'm a trail runner or a mountain runner and that's totally fine that's fine to do but in the society we have built up depending on how you identify you have some expectations and labels attached to you. So if one of your labels is, I am an athlete of any description, eating healthy is something that athletes do. Does that, are you following me so far? Does, it, does this yep. make sense so far? Yep. So here's what happens, or what I've seen is what happens when all the races are taken off the calendar, or you're injured, or you're in lockdown and you can't train. You're not technically really an athlete at the moment, so... What's the point in doing any self-care mechanisms? So a good example of this was me, myself. Back when I got my career-ending injury, I got very severe tendonitis in my left ankle joint. I was trying to qualify for the 20K walk in the other 23, the European under 23s. And I couldn't. I ended up in a boot for weeks. Couldn't even put a foot on the floor. I couldn't eat properly. I couldn't sleep there was one or two weeks I didn't even brush my teeth. The, the most basic in self-care routines and mechanisms, I saw no incentive to do them because my identity was invested in being an athlete and you're not an athlete if you're not training or racing. So if your whole framework of being is ripped out from under your feet, like with COVID-19, you're just not really going to do the cost benefit in your head to do those self-care things. So it makes sense to me that a lot of people are just at home I don't know, sitting down, drinking wine, eating crisps, doing whatever, because they feel like they might have no purpose or there's now no reason to look after themselves. People don't have a reason. So what I try and urge people to do, and it ends up kind of being the same result anyway, you'll, you'll still do these healthy, healthy behaviors, but you tie it into a different motivational factor. You, you do these healthy things because it's good for you or because that's how you take care of yourself or even because you deserve it, you know, that, that's that's something that's everlasting. It's not a, like if you're training for a race, 
the race is done, there's an end date, you might you might stop then, or you know, people stop and they say, Oh, what next? But if your if your motivation is tied into I need to take care of my health, that's an everyday thing until the day you die. So it's a more concrete way to change your motivation to do these behaviors. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I suppose as well that because maybe athletes are so used to eating healthy all year round that if they do have literally maybe two or three days where they don't eat healthy, they probably over-magnify and over-exaggerate the problem. Oh, my God, I haven't eaten healthy for two days. Where there's probably a massive percentage of people who don't eat healthy for two or three days and they're fine. But because we're... Two or three years. Yeah, 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 exactly. I I know myself, if I have a bad dinner, I might go, oh, my God, I need to train twice as hard now tomorrow to get rid of that bad dinner. And it's just crazy. It's not logical. We do tend to go from one extreme to another, isn't it? Could you you describe what you mean by bad dinner? Yeah. What I would mean by a bad dinner would be, let me see, pizza for me would be a bad dinner. Okay. A pizza followed by... By a full hundred grams of, of dark chocolate. Now, and I'm not saying a Twix or a Bounty, but I'm saying the full hundred grams. Well, I should maybe only be eating half of it. So in, instead of my vegetables, okay, so, instead of my avocados, I went down the pizza route tonight. <laughs> okay, that's probably not the best, in fairness. But if you were to make yourself or if it was a thin-based pizza and I had vegetable toppings on it, that's not really a bad thing. Granted, the dark chocolate, that's a pretty humongous portion. There'd be a good bit of saturated fat in that. Um, so I'd probably be looking at 40 grams instead of 100. Um, okay. But what, what I'm trying to get at here, most people who come to me have preconceived notions of what good and bad is. And they have, if they're athletes in particular, They'll have this um, in their head, this rule book of what they can and cannot do. And it's usually from social or cultural buildup. So a lot of athletes will say things like, oh, I can't have white bread or I can't eat chocolate or no, 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 I can't have dairy because I'm an athlete. And they're just totally irrational. There's no evidence anywhere ever to suggest that eating a moderate amount of junk food is negative sports performance or health, actually if you take all of the other boxes. So one one thing that I would be nailing my clients for is if they come back with the food, get stuff, and um, I'll just ask them, like, in the grand scheme of the week, do you honestly think that the homemade pizza you had or um, I, I hear some people, they, they, they go to, like, Mexican restaurants and get, like, um, bean, avocado, and rice and bowls and they think that's a disaster and I'm like you just ate a big bowl of fiber and plants like what's the what's the actual problem sure so it, it can be very very interesting to see how people react to what they think is bad and diet is not black or white like it's really not black or white it's all context it's all moderation it, it just yeah big gray area and people really struggle with that because there's no clear guidelines and everyone is different. It's the point that I was going to bring in later on, Evan, about um, what do we need to eat before, say, hard training sessions. And mm-hmm. I know that you're a big believer in that it's okay not to eat 100% healthy yeah. 
before yeah. and after the training session. For the rest of the day, sure, but before and after, yeah. not as much. Maybe could you talk to us about that? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Even the terms healthy and unhealthy, those are unhelpful. Like, okay. Cocoa Pops are one thing that I'm probably known for advertising or, or suggesting to people as a recovery food or pre-training food, but I'll run through the reasons why I do that. So, yeah. Let's say we're taking someone who's doing fairly decent level training, it's high intense, they're maybe training a few times a week, maybe once or twice a day. Carbohydrates are an absolute necessity for anyone to be training with, particularly anyone who has anything else going on, like a job or a family. You can't really afford to have low glycogen or blood sugar levels. You just won't be up to you won't be up to much. So if you're looking at exercise nutrition, rapidly absorbable sugars so high glycemic index foods that are very low in fiber very low in fat and have uh, minimal things like polyols fructans or fructose in them um the reason the reason you want that is number one that is the best and most efficient way to keep your blood sugar topped up and to keep that glycogen tank going because you're going to quickly take in those sugars number two to minimize tummy problems so tummy problems are very, very common in uh, trail runners or ultra-endurance athletes. So people who are doing those very long trails, um, mm. gastric problems are a serious issue there. So if you, if you weigh in all of the potential negative effects of not sticking to these quote-unquote unhealthy guidelines, it makes more sense to suggest to someone, look, a milky coffee and a banana is the perfect thing to have before training. And post-training within 20 minutes to jump on top of your recovery a bowl of cocoa pops with skimmed milk or semi-skimmed milk is perfectly fine it's um it's context-based so for example and a, a really poor way to fuel a workout would be to have a bowl of bran flakes um beforehand and to have like an omelet afterwards no, number one beforehand you've got a big dose of fiber it's probably going to be sitting in your stomach long after you finish your session. So you haven't even been able to get the carb hit out of it. The fiber is going to make you feel sick. Most likely you, unless you get diarrhea during your session, you might get it afterwards. And in your post training phase there, an omelet will offer up nothing in terms of glycogen or carbohydrate repletion. So your recovery is stalled and stunted. Um, but I would, I would frequently see people doing things like this, when they when they come to me and they show me like their their daily food intake and what they're doing around training and it just comes from a lack of understanding evan could i interrupt for a second and just could i replace yeah. the bran flakes example with a bowl of porridge yeah. because i'm sure maybe 70 to 80 percent of irish runners will have their bowl of porridge yeah. maybe before they do their their saturday hard session or even their sunday long run but you need to give it two hours. So if it's a bowl of porridge, that does need two hours because it's a little bit heavier. And some people can't have porridge at all. So there is a little bit of fiber in porridge. That's kind of like halfway house between the the, the typical refined cereals and bran flakes. Um, okay. As long as you're not throwing like nuts, uh, seeds into it, things like that before you train, you're, you're keeping your risk of tummy issues moderate as long as you leave that two hour buffer time. That's really important. Yeah, okay, okay. And then the, the omelette one after, I'm amazed mm -hmm. there because, you know, over the last 
10, 15 years, we've, we've all been told to get our protein shakes into us after training. Where you've just yes, said we have. the omelette is actually a complete waste of time and um, that we should totally be only, only focusing on carbohydrates after training. Yeah. Um, so I, I have, don't worry, I actually have science to substantiate my claims. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring you through it. So yeah. first of all, if we're looking at protein, most athletes, if they try and get protein, is they'll overshoot it. So for endurance athletes, you need to be around 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kg per day for lads. For females, you need to be around 1.6 grams per kg per day, just because uh, at certain phases of the menstrual cycle, protein turnover is higher. But I, I won't, I won't get into that right now. So, when we're looking at muscle strength, maintenance, and lean muscle mass and recovery, there's no additional benefit to going higher than those uh, values over the course of the day. And the research has shown a couple of things: the timing is not as important as the overall intake you get. So if we take if we take one athlete and we give them two different protocols and in one of the protocols, you know, he just the dude, the dude gets in his total protein requirements over the space of the day and the other protocol the dude gets in um, slightly less three hours. There's not going to be much of a difference if any um, so what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say, timing, not as important as we thought. If you're looking to squeeze the last um, ounce of muscle building potential from your body, which for anyone listening to this podcast wouldn't be or shouldn't be, then the every three hours uh, hitting that 25 gram dose of protein is going to be relevant. But for an endurance athlete, totally unimportant. And then onto the why is it not so important to do after training? Well, if you're fueling properly, what happens when you eat carbs before exercise? Your insulin level spikes a little bit. Um, when, when your insulin level is high, that puts in place biochemistry pathways to signal for muscle building. So you're in an anabolic phase, basically, where it's almost physiologically impossible to break down muscle anyway. Presuming that you you might take on some carb drinks or gels during your session and you're recovering properly, there's not a hope you're going to touch your muscles anyway. So that urgency to get the protein in doesn't make any sense. When we then go on to carbohydrate intake after training, something very cool happens. Your body's instant sensitivity really really rises, and your body's ability to transport glucose is through the roof. So after exercise, then you combine those two things with the fact that glycogen levels are massively suppressed. And if you get carbs in within that 20 minute window, you get this really increased rate of glycogen repletion. And why, why is that important? Glycogen levels where they're at will heavily influence your immune system. It'll heavily influence how quickly you recover. It'll heavily influence your exercise tolerance the following day and subsequent bouts of exercise in terms of how you perform. And it'll have a knock-on impact on your muscle protein synthesis rates over the course of the day. So if, if my guidelines were to have someone get a slightly lower amount of protein in order to fuel up properly or ingestion, I would definitely be doing, be doing that instead okay it's fascinating Evan, to hear you talk because 
you know, on real, realizing as you're, you're telling us all this information, just how important it is to eat, to eat before and after your sessions. Because I'm sure a lot of runners maybe don't even eat at all before sessions. And um, I'll give you an example. Myself, um, and I'd say probably like a lot of runners out there maybe who have small kids, who have a busy day, that they're probably getting up early in the morning to train, like I do. I drop the kids to school, um, and then I'm straight out training before I start work. So between getting the kids ready, getting them down to school, the most I have is maybe a double espresso, like what we spoke about at the top of the interview. And then off I go and I do my training. Yeah. can be from, you know, when I'm training in competition mode, the, the minimum is probably 65 to 70 minutes and the maximum is probably about two hours. And it actually got to the stage, Evan, where I got used to training fasted and my easy runs were quite comfortable fasted. My long runs were comfortable fasted. And it got to the stage, Evan, where I was doing my reps and my tempo runs fasted as well, just because of the lifestyle that I had. And okay. And so on. Now, Evan, that worked for maybe two years, I'd say. And I got lighter than I ever did before because naturally I was burning off all these kilos every day, literally burning off three or four yeah. kilos per, per session. But listening to you talking there and how I felt at, at the end of maybe that two-year cycle, I was wasted. And I got it completely wrong. Um, so fasted running, um, Evan, out the window for, for the majority of our training sessions. So there is nuance here. Let, let me explain. If you do like to train first thing in the morning, you can do it fasted. But there are a couple of caveats you have to stick by in order to do that. Number one, make sure you have some fluids on board before you do a morning session you're mildly dehydrated first thing in the morning and we, we might go on to dehydration afterwards. It might be an interesting segue because it's hugely important for the people listening to this. Okay. Um, but dehydration will ruin your session much, much quicker than low carbs will. Number two, the, the caveats that we need to think about. If your glycogen levels are low, you're really only going to be capable of doing something low intensity where your fat oxidation is kind of peaked. So 65% VO2 max is the sweet spot there. Recovery, recovery runs really. And you want to keep it to less than an hour so you don't really put your glycogen levels on the absolute floor because that can take three days to turn around. Um, wow. So to summarize, the, the caveats are if you're going to train fasted, you have to be hydrated before you do it. It has to be less than an hour in intensity or less than an hour in duration. It has to be very low intensity or it can be nothing taxing or high, highly um, aerobically challenging there, or even anaerobic, because it's just inappropriate to do that. You don't have the fuel on hand to do it. Yeah. Number three, you can't have a tough session the following day because it takes around 36 hours to fully bring back an emptied glycogen tank unless you completely drain yourself, in which case it takes two to three days. So not something you do in race week or before key sessions either. Okay. And if I go back to point number two there, Evan, that we shouldn't be doing our long Sunday runs or even a lot of trail runners that might do a big, massive long run on a Saturday, we shouldn't be doing them anywhere near a fasted state. And would I be right in saying, Evan, that you would be against the, the fat-based approach to, to fueling 
I know it was very popular mm. maybe four or five years ago. And I don't like the word they use the term fashionable because this should be all science based. But a couple of years ago, it was <laughs> fashionable um, to do a lot of yeah. our running fat fueled. But the science that you're yes. telling us about now, so, it can be actually detrimental. Yeah. So there, again, there's nuance there. If you plan on running your event at like 60, to 65% of your VO2 max, which is strolling to the shop pace almost. It's not hard. Then you could do fat fuel theoretically. You could base all your training around that approach. But if you're training and, you know, on race day, the whole point is to perform to your optimal level. If you're anything over 70% VO2 max, which is still, that's still easy pace for a trained person. It's just suboptimal to rely on fat as a, as a fuel source. There's a couple of reasons why um, they're not all exercise related either. You're looking at the health implications as well to a fat-rich diet. Um, so where, where I start with this. So if we look at exercise intensity, the more intense you're going. So I know with a, with a few hours of a long run, it's not going to be too hectic. But again, 70% you to master higher, your fat oxidation rate starts to drop significantly and you rely increasingly on carbs to fuel so number one it's just it's not efficient enough so it, it's really costly so if we we look at it maybe in terms of uh, to burn some glucose versus burn some fat you're looking at like triple the price for for fat so if fat versus carbs we're looking at an ESD bill fat is much more expensive to, to burn in the first place yeah. Number two, or number even, even in steady state stuff, after a period of time, you do start to build up lactate levels. So that, that's going to accumulate even at steady state after a long time on your feet. It's just that that's just something that happens. If you're getting like two, three hours in, in your cells, you use carnitine. So you've heard of like more fire supplements with L-carnitine. Use L-carnitine to do two things. It can buffer lactic acid, and it can also chauffeur long-chain fatty acids into your mitochondria to be used as fuel. When you get to the stage where that lactate accumulation is happening gradually, increasingly, you're putting carnitine under pressure there to serve two purposes. So not only will you be in a, in a suboptimal fuel position your fuel supply is also dropping as well as you as you get further and further along your your course um, number three higher fat diets they are more likely to cause gastric problems so depending on what you're supplementing with on race day fat is a gastric emptying rate of maybe six to seven hours and a very high osmotic load so high fat dieters are very likely to vomit or have diarrhea related symptoms uh, or just pain when they exercise, which is really interesting. And then if that wasn't enough, people who tend to do high fat diets, they'll tend to do stupid things like bulletproof coffee or have a fry every morning or just avoid fruit. And the net outcome of that is having high LDL cholesterol and um, some not so good insulin sensitivity, both of which are massive risk factors to type 2 diabetes and multiple variants of metabolic syndrome with an increased risk of CVD, strokes, cancer, you name it. Um, it's not necessarily a cool thing to do. When we compare it against carbohydrates, which you can absolutely use in longer events, um, 
your your health, quality of life, race performance, recovery, immune function, they're all better on carbohydrates. So if if you're looking at top or um what pros and cons of this, it's just it's just no it's a no brainer. Like it's cool to use fat you said earlier on with those caveats because you can get a little bit of mitochondrial biogenesis and increased capillarization. Fat fuel work can do that, but it should only ever be used as a tool. Not the, it's not a religion. It's just a tool, you know. Yeah, no, it's great advice, Evan. And I think I'm going to have to change my routine. I think um, for 2021, and uh, get up an hour earlier before the kids are awake, and get my um, small bowl of porridge in without the nuts before I go training. Because as I said, it worked for me, Evan, up to a, up to a point. I got leaner and lighter than I ever was. Of course I did. I wasn't eating anything before I was going running. Um, but it got to the stage where at the start of this year, 2020, I was still having good results in races, but even the shortest of races felt like a marathon because I had just drained so much from the body from all those fasted runs over maybe a two and a half year period. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner, man, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah. Like, if you're strapped for time, you can have a banana, like, 20, 30 minutes beforehand, because that okay. only has mostly sugar, opposed to complex carbs. So that yeah. can have a quick gastric game versus okay. porridge, which would take about two hours. Sure. And I've heard you saying before as well that dates are very good, but you need to be careful with the dried fruits. And dates are very good, but something like raisins wouldn't be. So we need to be careful with what quick hits that yes. we're getting. Uh, raisins and grapes have very high fructose contents and a very high osmotic load. So if you compare them to dried apricots or medjool dates, the raisins and grape type foods are more likely to cause gastric problems compared to the other two, even if you take them at the same time in the same amount. Okay. Um, I might move on to hydration, Evan. And there was a fascinating yeah. stat that, that I read from you that a 1% drop in hydration oh, yeah. can lead to yeah. a 10% drop in performance. How can we measure a 1% drop in hydration, Evan? Because 10% drop in performance is massive. So it's so important that we get yeah. this right and we don't lose that 1%. But how in heaven's name do we measure that? So it's actually, it's it's annoying. It's a kind of an elusive enough thing Um you can't actually measure your hydration unless you get a blood test and they'll check the osmolarity of your blood um, or the concentration of it, basically. Um, most people tend to rely on urine color or thirst. It's important to bear in mind that those are both delayed markers. So if you're thirsty, your body has already released the vasopressin and endotensin to alter how your kidneys and body metabolize and excrete water, your blood pressure is going to be increased. That's, that's one of the things that kicks off that thirst response is when, when your serum concentration gets a bit, bit thicker due to lack of water. So if you get thirsty, you were 1% dehydrated about 30 minutes ago. If your urine is slightly darker or kind of going uh, posted no yellow or lemonade you're two or three percent dehydrated or more, depending on how kind of dark yellow it is. And you've been in that kind of shape for, for a while, at least 45, 30, 45 minutes. So the only real way to not get dehydrated is to preemptive. So one thing that I 
crucify athletes for a particularly higher level athlete in hot countries, just not having a bottle in their hand at all times and just sipping at it kind of ad libitum or ad hoc throughout the day, not taking big chugs, not gulping it, sipping throughout the day. 35 mils per kilogram is the way to go. So that, that's kind of your, your basic daily. And you're adding in about half a liter per hour of exercise then on, on the regular, even for sessions that are 30 to 60 minutes. I would be telling people to do that. If, if we're taking water on board, Evan, and if we're having our carbs before a training session, should we mm-hmm. nearly then be coming back after our training session? And if we were to get on the weighing scales, we nearly should be weighing the exact same as when we left. Because I know Ideally, an awful habit of mine, yeah. of mine is that yeah, before my long run on a Sunday, I'll get on and I might be, say, 60, 68 kilos. And I'll come back and, yeah. and I measure myself and I could be 65 kilos. But if oh we're getting God. our nutrition <laughs> and our hydration right, I should be nearly close to my 68 kilos, should I? So you're losing about 4% of your body weight in like two hours. Yeah, regularly. Regularly that, on a long Sunday run. approximately 4 or 5% dehydration. I know that you're living in a, in a nice part of the world where the weather is pretty decent. You yeah. are probably towing the line for heat stroke or exercise-induced hyponatremia. So with, with every percentage dehydration you accrue, your core temperature rises by quarter of a degree. Now, bear in mind, everyone is talking about fever at the moment. Um, a fever is if your core temperature is one degree higher than it should be. And your core temperature rises anyway with exercise. So the higher, the hotter you get, basically, there's a certain threshold where you just get heat stroke. Um, you, okay. you get confused, you might be dizzy, you might vomit, you might uh, You just won't feel great. And it can be dangerous. Essentially, your brain is getting fried. Um but even aside from that, if you're losing that much weight, I guarantee you, you could or should be so much quicker than you are on long runs and recover so much quicker than you probably currently do. It's sure. a huge scope for improvement for you yeah. if you just hydrate properly. Yeah, I'll take it into account from now, Evan, without a question of a doubt. And I was just going to ask you maybe on the hydration piece as well. We've seen Kipchoge... Yeah. Take this new magic pill, the Morton drink. Um, in your own opinion, or fr- from any research that you've seen, Evan, is is the is the Morton drink is it the hydration equivalent of the carbon plated marathon shoe? No, it's it's actually not too dissimilar to a lot of other products. What they did with Morton, right? They used powder, and they would have slowly they would have started Kipchoge probably on a six percent solution. So 30 grams of carbs an hour in a 500 mil or 600 mil bottle. Um, and they would slowly have built that up with, with the powder. That's probably why they use powder. Because um, you would have seen he would have been handed bottles a lot. The reason they do that is to get your carb intake up to the maximum, which is 90 grams an hour. That's the most a human can do. You have to have a two to one carb source of maltodextrin to fructose. There has to be a little bit of sodium in it. There'll probably be some time in the magnesium as well, <clears throat> but you have to practice. So you need to get used to taking on more, more concentrated products, higher viscosity products during exercise. And after, after a few months of, of training it, your intestinal physiology actually changes and allows to adapt. I mean, 15% solution that he was drinking 
and your intestinal um, receptors, they actually grow in number, so you're better at absorbing things. So when you see it on Ineos 159, that's been a work in progress for most, uh, for most people. Martin at SIS Beta Fuel, good old high five energy powder, they're more or less the exact same thing. Martin is just probably the brand that got in there and got on the sponsorship uh, card. Okay. Well, speaking of supplements, Evan, and I know we're, we're probably running short on time now. We've done a good, great quality 40 minutes. Um, in terms of supplements, Evan, there's so many out there. There's so much noise, yeah. so much marketing, so much celebrity runner endorsements. As a nutritionist yourself, what would be yeah. the top two or three supplements that a trail and mountain runner should look at where our races would be anything from, say, 30 minutes to our short Leinster League in my races on a Wednesday night to the, to the big trail guys who are running UTMBs and Wicklow Ways that can go on for hours and hours. Your, your top two or three supplements? Top two or three. Vitamin D is the first one and that everyone should be taking, particularly this time of year. Interestingly enough, with the seasonal drop in vitamin D, athletes get upper respiratory tract infections and connective tissue injuries almost correlate with that um it's also really important for your recovery and bone health so that's number one 500 to a thousand i use per day second supplement would be creatine monohydrate actually in a maintenance dose of five to eight grams a day and the reason i suggest that is not so you can gain massive uh, tricep gain but what it can do is it can actually increase your glycogen storage capacity and increase your level of natural killer t cells and if you are someone doing big miles it can just help prevent uh, some um, some muscle degradation so it's a really good tool to have in the kit and something that i pretty much give to all athletes i'm working with number three then i suppose it's probably a toss-up, like for the people listening to this, I'd be giving them a, a high-strength probiotic just to bolster gut health. In longer-type endurance um, work, you can get some intestinal permeability, and again, gut issues can be a problem. So having, having a good gut health limits, limits that. It's digestive health nice, and it limits the possibility of um, exercise-induced endotoxin. So... There's little bacteria and pathogens in, in your intestine that can seep into your bloodstream when when you get this uh, exercise effect, and then it can actually be quite dangerous, which is probably a threat you never knew about until now. So I do I do yeah. apologize um, for giving you major anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> we'll all be uh, we'll all be going down to the pharmacy tomorrow morning to to stock up on those things. Um, last oh, one from me, Kevin, if I can. But, I, I might indulge myself a little bit here. Um, I mentioned at the top yeah. of the interview that I loved my dark chocolate. And I'd say like yes. most kids of the 70s and 80s growing up in Ireland, you know, I grew up in a kitchen that was full of sugary cereals, Rice Krispies, sugar puffs, <laughs> Swiss rolls, club milks, jam tarts for desserts and so on. Um, not only for desserts, yeah. but for lunch as well. We were down and everything back then. So I grew up with a terribly sweet tooth. And when yeah. I started training hard to try and get rid of it, I switched to dark chocolate. Started off with, say, 70% yeah. bars and then worked up to 85 and 90%. And 
yeah. honestly, I might say that hardly ever will you see me eating a biscuit or a club milk or a Swiss roll or even cereals anymore. But I've replaced them by probably an overloaded dark chocolate. So maybe two questions, <laughs> Evan. Am I, am I kidding myself by eating my full bar of 100 grams of 85% dark chocolate every day? And then how do we get rid of the sweet tooth? Like I'm sure so many of us out there have that sweet tooth. It's like stopping drinking to take up smoking. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so there's probably no need to get rid of your sweet tooth. Your sweet tooth. Um, if if you were to make sure your dietary protein levels were met, you got enough fiber in your diet and you were hydrated enough, you might find that a small amount of milk chocolate or something sugary will satiate you, as opposed to having to go for big portions. Okay. In saying that. What you're, what you're doing now, you know, it's it's obviously 100 grams is too much, but tone it back to 40 grams, and that's fine. It's not a problem. There's no yeah. need to get rid of sweet tooth. Humans evolved eating things like fruits uh, from trees. Like, you remember, you have to remember, we used to be basically monkeys that lived in trees. Um, so that, that sweet tooth is almost evolutionary driven. And when your blood sugar gets low, so after exercise, you're probably going to have more of a sweet tooth. Or when you skip meals for long periods of time, you're going to have a sweet tooth because your blood sugar is low. So one thing you, one thing that's actually commonly seen is deficiency-induced cravings. So low blood sugar means you're going to look for sugar, and subconsciously you know what food has sugar in it, and it's just going to want, make you want it more. It's one, it's one reason why people at nighttime, when they're tired, they may have not eaten much all day or they've been, quote-unquote, good all day, it's why they often find themselves unconsciously eating biscuits for the truckload, just because they, they were reaching for sugar and being off them. Um, but I don't see it as a problem. I just okay. see it as something you need to moderate. That's, that's about it. It, it sounds like... I'm, yeah, 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 100 grams is definitely too much. And I was just going to say, it sounds like maybe that a, a good strategy might be to, to snack consistently throughout the day. Because, again, I got a bit confused over the years. Uh, like yourself, I've got young children, and I remember the, the, the nurses and the doctors in the hospital saying, oh, the babies, make sure they're fed every four hours, on the dot, every four hours. So I nearly ended up applying that to myself. Every four hours I'll eat, and not before, and not after. So I kind of cut out eating snacks, Evan, that I had my breakfast after training, as I was saying to you, at maybe 11 o'clock. Yeah. Then I had my lunch at 3 and then my dinner at maybe seven or eight o'clock, and that was it. And no snacking at okay. all. But from talking to yourself, I think that's yeah. a big mistake, that we're not babies. We don't need to be fed every four hours. That, Especially if we're training hard, we should probably snack a little bit as well. Yeah, well, it's actually um, common recommendations would be three main meals of snacks in between, even for adults. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's... So you would you should find yourself definitely eating something every three hours anyway, um, with every second something being a big meal, or a relatively okay. big meal. Yeah. And even even at nighttime, it's okay to eat at night. People think it's not. People just tend to make shitty decisions at nighttime, and that's that's why nighttime eating gets a bad rap because you, you never <laughs> see people like having having a salad or like a, a bowl of whole grain pasta at night time it's usually like a takeaway or pizza or like a pringle sandwich or something like that you know and um, well listen evan 
it's been a wonderful 46 minutes um, or so. I've really enjoyed it and I've learned so much as well. And I know you, you've had some great success with a lot of the country's top athletes, Evan, as well. So congratulations on, on that tremendous body of work that you've done so so quickly and so soon. And um, from talking to you, I can see why you work so well with people and would 100% recommend anybody listening to give you a shout. And what I thought, Evan, maybe I was going to send out um, a question on social media beforehand to get some questions from the listeners. Mm-hmm. But I thought maybe we could maybe do that again, maybe in the new year. And, um, yeah. And get you back again if that was okay, and we'll get some um, specific questions from the listeners maybe then. And in the meantime, yeah. I know that you've just launched a new project as well, a new website called yeah. researchbytes.com. If you wanted to tell us about that, yeah, hundred hundred percent. So basically, you know, during this conversation, what I've tried to do is break down the science into layman's terms and put it into context. As opposed to me saying things like insulinogenic profiles and anabolism and metabolism, I try to speak in plain English. What I often find with clients and people who reach out to me, so I get maybe 10 messages a day, people are confused about nutrition. And research bites is basically set up put nutrition, health and sports science into the fingertips of people. So what we're doing, so if me and a colleague, he, he, um, he's a master's degree in public health and I, I went to college with him, we're breaking down one research paper at a time. So the, the last one I did was vitamin D3 and strength. It was a big meta-analysis. And that's, that's intimidating enough for people to, to look at and read from the outside. So what we do is we break it down, give some context, tell people what it's about and show them the results. And, you know, a lot of people, you'll see it in the tabloid, Recently enough, there's been ones there that vitamin D can uh, cure COVID was one in a lot of tabloids. But the research paper, what it actually showed was people who had a vitamin D deficiency were more likely to get upper respiratory tract infections. So um, and, uh, a journalist read that and jumped to conclusions and thinks or said COVID, which is a bit of a reach. And people make these reaches and jump conclusions all the time because they don't have the knowledge. People tend to build up these huge heuristics in general around nutrition. So our whole thing is, can we, number one, make nutrition research clear and concise and give clear guidelines for athletes, coaches and students studying nutrition? So you'll see a lot of the topics will be like uh, whey protein versus pea protein, the best kind of fuel source for exercise uh, training, implications of dehydration, weeks out from races, the best carb fueling strategies, and it's all based on actual research, just put into layman's terms so everyone has access to it, as opposed to the few people who went and studied nutrition. So that's, that's kind of the whole, the whole premise of it. Um, I don't think it should be something that only a few can access. Uh, part of, of what I do it's it, uh, breaking down that wall and educating and empowering the public to manage their nutrition theory like it's there's no there's no utility in me knowing all the theory because I can't cook your dinner with my theories you know it all has to be practical and people have to understand um, I think how, I'll, how I'll finish off is understanding is in the language of the receiver that's, that's the whole point of research like, basically well, I think um, we'd all be better athletes Evan, if we read um, nutritional advice from people, highly qualified people like yourself, 
rather than getting our nutritional tips on social media, Facebook and Instagram and what have you, but coming um, from experts in the field like you. And I know, Evan, you've been very generous that you've given um, Trail Running Ireland podcast listeners a 50% discount off anybody who wants mm-hmm. to get in and read your work if they put in mm-hmm. Mountain 50 on the research-bike.com website. They can get access to all your research and all your articles there. And if anybody wants to drop you a line for some excellent, excellent professional advice, they can get in touch with you on your Instagram account or on your website, mm-hmm. evanlinchfitnut.com. Evan, it's been an absolute pleasure. You revolutionized my nutrition for the, for 2021 when the new year starts when I get Good. Back. All right, so so thanks a million. No worries, man. It's my pleasure.